The last few weeks, you know that we've been going through a sermon series looking at the teachings of Solomon. King Solomon was viewed as the wisest king in the history of Jerusalem, the wisest king to ever take the throne in Jerusalem, because when he was just a young boy, uh, God came to him after his father David had died. King David was a great king, but God came to King Solomon and said, what shall I do for you? And King Solomon asked that God might give him wisdom, wisdom to know between how to lead God's people, the wisdom to discern between good and, and evil. And so we are told that God gave uh, Solomon great wisdom. In fact, people traveled all over the known world to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Solomon is actually credited in 1 Kings uh, chapter 4 of, for writing over 3,000 proverbs. Now, what is a proverb exactly? Well, proverb is a short, pithy saying intended to communicate some type of truth or some type of insight that might be helpful for living. Reminds me of the uh, <coughs> old African proverb. It's kind of funny. It says, if your enemy wrongs you, buy each one of his children a drum. <laughs> that will show your enemy. Now all their kids has drums, so they'll be beating them nonstop, driving you, your enemy crazy. If you cannot, uh, and another uh, proverb that's from business, you cannot climb to the top by sitting on your bottom. That's good. Or this one from uh, science. The problem with the gene pool there is no lifeguard, no lifeguard for the gene pool. Now, these are not inspired proverbs. These aren't in the Bible. They're just clever sayings or proverbs. But in the book of Proverbs, we actually have 31, there's 31 chapters. And it's very good, a good spiritual practice to recognize, you know, whatever day of the week it is, like today's the third, to go to the book of Proverbs chapter three and read the Proverbs for that day. There's 31 uh, chapters in the book of Proverbs, one chapter for each day of the month. So today is the third. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter three. Proverbs chapter three, beginning with verse one. It may be found on page 671 of your Red Pew Bible. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for granting Solomon his request, giving him wisdom, wisdom that we might learn from today. I pray, Lord, that as we read these proverbs, these proverbs from Solomon, that you might give us insight on how you would call us to live so that we might better glorify you in all that we say and do. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Proverbs chapter three, beginning with verse one, listen to the word of the Lord. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. I want to pause here just for a moment. I think it's real important to notice that Solomon is instructing his son to let his heart keep my commandments. Now, the Hebrew word for heart there is lev. And for Hebrews, the heart was not simply an organ that pumped blood. No, the heart was the place where we, where we live our lives. We live our lives out of our heart, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks, as Jesus tells us. All of our inclinations, all of our desires, our emotions, our wants are lived out of our heart. What's inside of our heart? In fact, they believed, Hebrews did, that, well, that most of our wisdom is going to be found in the heart, and that's not necessarily our mind. And so the heart and the mind were, were often associated together. In fact, we notice uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, 
after God has approached King Solomon asking him, what shall I give you? We read these specific words of 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Solomon says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Now, the Hebrew word mind there is actually lev, which can also be translated as heart, because the heart and the mind. Wisdom wasn't just found here, it was actually found here, and the heart and the mind were associated as one together. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this and God said to him because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life of your enemies but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right behold I now do according to your word behold I give you a wise and discerning mind lev also translated as heart so that none, of li- none like you has been before, and none like you shall arise after you. God gives Solomon a wise lev, a wise heart, and the English translators have translated in 1 Kings chapter 3 it as mind, because most of us today in the Western world, we think wisdom is found here in our minds. In the Hebrew mind, in the Hebrew understanding, wisdom is found here in our hearts. Because ultimately it is out of our hearts that we live and we speak and we are guided by the wisdom of our heart. So what are the commands that the father is telling him to keep in his heart? Let's keep reading. Proverbs 3, picking up again with verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart heart, your love. Once again, if you have the word of God, the commandments in, in, engraved in your heart, you will not forget them and you will live by them. Then you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your straight, your straight path, make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, your love, and lean on on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your straight your paths. Fifteen years ago this month, actually, my wife and I said these words over our daughter Hannah when we baptized her at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston. The tradition there was that when a child was baptized, the parents would say and recite some word of, of wisdom, word of encouragement to their child. And, and we chose Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 because these are our favorite Proverbs. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean out on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. At least that's the NIV that we memorized years ago. 
And so we would say that over our daughter, Hannah, because we wanted her to be wise. We wanted her to trust the Lord with all of her heart, not some of her heart, some of the time, but all of her heart, all of the time, to not lean on her own understanding, but in all her ways acknowledge him and God would make her paths straight. Now, the great temptation in our postmodern world today is to was to lean on our own understanding. In fact, in our postmodern world today, truth is relative and and truth is ultimately determined by one's experience. And and well, if I allow my wisdom to only come from my own experience, at least I've got to admit, it's pretty limited, isn't it? Reminds me when I was in college, I was about 20 years old and one of our our good friends who was a senior had just gotten engaged and we ended up in this conversation about what makes a great marriage. and well, you need to know this, Mine, I'm from Generation X. Generation X were those who were born from 1964 to 1984. I'm born in 1974, I'm like dead center Generation X. And my generation experienced more divorce, more broken families than any other generation before it. And so we had some pretty strong opinions about what makes a good marriage and why some marriages fail. And, and as this conversation was going on and people were giving some pretty strong opinions about what makes a good marriage and what to avoid to make sure your marriage lasts a lifetime, I couldn't help but notice that none of us were married. <laughs> we were acting as if we were experts, but our, our, our experience was pretty limited. None of us had actually been married. We really didn't know what we were talking about. I mean, yes, we had our own personal experience of our parents' marriage, and we'd seen how that worked or did not work, and so we were in that trying to give all this wisdom, but your wisdom's pretty limited if you limit it only to your own personal experiences. If we want true wisdom, we've gotta go to God. We need to go to God's word. We need to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. What does it mean to trust in the Lord with all of our heart exactly? Well, as I shared just a moment ago, the Hebrew word for heart here is lev. And lev means the inner inclinations, the inner desires. It's where even the mind was believed to to reside. That ultimately, we love our lives out of our heart because it's the ultimate motivator. It, It drives all of who we are. It's the core. It's the center of who we are. And so to say to trust in the Lord with all your heart is basically to say trust in God with all that you are. The very center of who you are. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, if we do this, if we trust the Lord with all of our heart, well, how are we going to live? What does it mean to to trust the Lord with all of our heart? Well, the words trust and believe are often used in the same way in the Bible, but they have very different meanings. Believe means to give intellectual assent. I, I believe something. For instance, a person could, well, could believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century. People could even believe that he was crucified. Some people believe that he rose again. Others people believe not only did he rise again, but they've given intellectual assent and said, yes, I believe that Jesus died and rose again and that he's the savior of the world. But if it only stays here, it doesn't transform here, does it? And here, it's not enough, according to Jesus. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Gary just read from Matthew 6. In Matthew 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You gotta do his will, not just know his will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a tough saying. Jesus has been giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's been talking about how we ought to pray and how we ought to give and how we ought to fast. 
He's been talking about how we ought to forgive and how we ought to pray for our enemies. He's been talking about how we should love our neighbors, ourselves. He gives some pretty tough teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end, he says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who gives intellectual assent to who I am will really enter the kingdom of heaven. But notice what these people claim. Lord, I prophesied in your name. I, I did mighty miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. They were doing what, what everyone would say were good things. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus. They'd given their minds to Christ, but not their hearts. They hadn't truly trusted him with all that they are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight. So what does that look like exactly when we trust in the Lord with all of our heart? Well, as we talked about last Sunday, we will try to do everything for the glory of God. We will acknowledge him in all of our ways. We will seek his will in, in ways for our lives. And, and if you didn't get to see last week's sermon, you can go to our webpage and you can download that. But you can also see as we continue to read our text this morning, it says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. When you put your trust in the Lord, when you, when you put your heart with God, then, then you will turn away from evil. When temptation comes, you will know to resist it. You won't be drawn to it because you'll want to honor God with all that you are and how you live. And as we continue to read, we see that part of trusting God with all of our heart means, as verse 9 tells us, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I know many of us can read verse 9 and go, honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, if I had wealth, I mean real wealth, then man, I would give like you wouldn't believe it. But I don't have a lot of wealth. I mean, it's all I can do to pay my bills each month and, and save a little bit for retirement. But notice what Solomon is instructing his son to do. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. This command to honor God with your wealth, with specifically the first fruits of all your produce, echoes the words that Moses gave to the people of Israel in Exodus 23, verse 19, where Moses tells the people of Israel, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Exodus 23, verse 19. We were called to give the best of our first fruits, not what's left over at the end of the year, we're called to give the best of our fruits, and specifically, we're called to give 10%, for we read in Leviticus 27, verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe, that means 10% in the Hebrew. It's literally 10%. So we're called to give the first fruits and 10%. In fact, if you want to think about it, think about it. I know this is football country. Think first and 10, right? First and 10. It's first down, 10 yards to go. Actually, no, it's first fruits and 10%. Called to give 10%. And of our first fruits shows that I'm trusting God as I give my first fruits that ultimately I know God is going to continue to provide as I put my faith and my trust in God, as I seek to do all that I can with what God has given to me. Because we know from the words of King David that we read in Psalm 24, verse one to two, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Ultimately, we are simply stewards of God's stuff. God has given us everything, all that we have, all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. The minds we have that allow us to earn income is a gift from God, and and all that has been created is ultimately God's, and so we're simply called to be good stewards. So what does a, a good steward of God's stuff look like? Well, it looks like someone who gives their first fruits and at least 10% back to God in gratitude for all that God has given to us, first and ten. So if the Bible clearly explains that we're called to give 10%, first fruits, 10%, then why is it that the average Christian in America gives, on average, to their church 2.5% of their income? Now, over the years in ministry, I make a point to read through the Bible at least once every year. I've read the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard Version of the Bible, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. I've even read the message. I've read all of it from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. I've never found 2.5% in any of those translations. Where do we come up with 2.5%? Why is it that the average Christian in America only gives 2.5% back to God and to his local church? Well, I think Andy Stanley the pastor at North Point Church and best-selling author, he understands why this happens. He points out that, well, on average, most American Christians live on the principle of live, save, give. I live, I try to save something for retirement, and if there's anything left over at the end of the year, then I'll, then I'll give what I can at the end of the year. That's how 2.5% happens. But Andy Stanley points out wisely that as we read the Bible, we can see that actually we're called to reverse that We're called to give, save, live. Give, save, live. Can you say that with me? Give, save, live. You see, we're called to live a life in such a way that in gratitude for what God has given to us, we make a commitment that we're gonna give the first fruits 10% back to God, to the glory of God. One of the reasons we ask our church every year in November, and this happens to be a Commitment Sunday, sorry for the guests here, we won't ask anything from you, but this is what we do every first Sunday in November. It just so happens your uh, child is getting baptized today, but our grandchild, but really, uh, whatever you wanna give, but the point is we make a commitment as a church that each one of us is going to commit what we're gonna do for next year. And I don't know about your family, but it's helpful to my family to start our budget building process for next year in November to say, hey, what is our income? And my wife and I put that together and we say, well, what's 10% of that? And we make a commitment on our pledge to give 10% of our income uh, back to the church. And then we decide that whatever we're gonna give to missionaries that we sponsor or some of the children overseas that we sponsor or some of the other ministries, that'll, that'll be above and beyond our tithe. That's called our special offering in our lives. That's the way we understand what God's word tells us to do. And you need to know that the budget that is shown here in our uh, Celebrate magazine is simply a proposed budget. That's why it says proposed budget. We've prayed and we've met with the finance committee and the stewardship committee and the budget, uh, the the, uh, board of trustees and the session, and and we've talked about, you know, what is it God calling us to give? And this is a proposed budget. The budget won't be finalized until the session finalizes it in February after we have received these pledge cards because these pledge cards tell us what we can expect as a church that God is calling our people to give. So what is God calling you to give? What is that 10% or perhaps even more? Now I know uh, that a lot of other Christians will say, gosh, 10% isn't like an Old Testament principle. I don't see tithing talked about in the Bible a lot in the New Testament. Well, you're correct. The uh, tithing began in the Old Testament but it actually is mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament, specifically Jesus makes reference to it in Matthew 23 and then also in Luke 11. And both times he affirms the idea of tithing, of giving 10% back to the temple. 
But they don't talk a lot about tithing in the New Testament because they gave well above a tithe. Tithing was the starting point of generosity, not a destination for the people of God. The first century church was known for its generosity. In fact, we read in Acts 2 that no one had a need among them because if anyone ever had a need, they would give what they could to help meet that need. We read in Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas, who was from the tribe of Levi, who was very familiar with the Levitical code that says you're supposed to only give 10%, he, he sold everything and gave the proceeds of that sell to the apostles for them to use to help grow the church to help do the work of God's kingdom. It's in the New Testament, we don't see a lot about tithing because they gave so much above and beyond a tithe. What motivated them to be so generous? I think the answer is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. The apostle Paul reminds us, if you know the grace, grace is God's unmerited favor, we're saved by grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, God's one and only son, left the glory and the riches of heaven, and he was born as a little baby in a lowly manger. And then he began to grow up among us and he began to teach us and he began to heal us and ultimately he humbled himself yet again to the point of death on a cross so that our sins could be atoned for. And then on the third day he rose again conquering both sin and death on our behalf. So that when the first century church looked at all that God had done for them in Jesus Christ, they couldn't help but give in gratitude for what God had given to them. As you read in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, the first century church was known for its generosity because they had seen just how generous God had been towards them. And they couldn't help but give back to others to help do the work of God's kingdom. As we read just a moment ago, the disciples understood what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, which Gary read a moment ago in Matthew 6. That storing up our treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy is pretty silly. But rather we should store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And every time we make an investment in the work of God's kingdom, God is able to take what we give. And and like the little boy in in John chapter 6 who gives his lunch to Jesus, you know, the five barley loaves and the two fish. And Jesus is able to multiply it to feed what we were told is just 5,000 men, not including women and children, probably about 15,000 people that day. When we give to God, back to God out of gratitude for what he's given to us, he takes what we give and he's able to multiply its impact to to minister to so many, many, many more. I don't know if you've had a chance to look through our Celebrate magazine, celebrating all that God did, but if you just look at the Vacation Bible School page, it's overwhelming. The 176 children who, who were in our facility that first week of June with 60 volunteers helping minister to them and reading that 53 of them prayed to receive Christ for the first time or to affirm their faith in Jesus Christ. His lives were changed for eternity as we gave back to God to help do the work of God's kingdom. If you look closely at our budget, you'll see that in the very back page, you know, there's a little pie chart here that kind of talks about what our plans are, what we believe God's calling us to do, and you'll see that for missions, we've made the commitment that we're going to give 12% 12% to missions. Now I know 12% is more than 10% because as we look at the, the Bible in the New Testament church, we can see that, well, well, tithing was the beginning point 
of generosity, not the destination. And so we want to be generous and give as much as possible to serve, to help fulfill the great commission of making disciples both in Amarillo and around the world. And so as you read the page and the list of all the missionaries that we now support financially, both locally and and globally, you can see that God is using this church to have a a deep impact in, in places like Taiwan or Kenya or Spain or Germany or Bolivia or Zambia or Iran or northern Iraq in a predominantly Muslim country where it's not safe to proclaim the name of Christ and yet our missionaries are boldly sharing their faith helping point others to Christ so their lives might be changed for all eternity. Many of you know that my degree at uh, Trinity University is actually in business finance and economics. I worked for Price Waterhouse right out of school and I can tell you the greatest investment you can make is the long-term investment. There's no better investment than working and investing in the kingdom of God. Of course, you know, as you look at the pledge card, you can see that we're not just asking for a financial commitment. We're asking, asking for a, a commitment of talents and time, time, talents, and treasures. Yes, we need resources. We need money to help make things go, the lights, uh, to keep the lights on and the air conditioning, heating, all that kind of fun stuff. But also, we need to give of our time and our talents. What ministry is God calling you to give to in the way of your time and your talents? We're asking everyone to fill out this slot that says how much money you plan to give next year, but also what ministry would you like to be a part of to serve? In a moment, we're gonna hear from Doug White sharing with us why, how God has called him to serve and what a powerful testimony it is as we think about using our time and our talents and treasures all to the glory of God. You know, this uh, Thursday, um, Steve Curtis, a longtime member of our church, lead usher at 8.30, uh, passed away in his sleep. It's the way I hope I go. Sleeping, never wake up. When I wake up, I'm in, I'm in glory. I'm in heaven with Jesus. I can't wait for that. You know, every time we have a loved one die, we have to think, we give eulogy, and we talk about their lives and how their lives made a difference. And Steve was so faithful to serve as a lead usher for our church at 8.30 for years, ever since I've been here. Very good about coordinating their ties. They always coordinate their ties at 8.30, make sure they look the same. But Steve was one who gave his time, his talents, and his treasures to the work of God's kingdom. And I'm certain that when he gets to heaven, Jesus is looking at him and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share the the joy of your master's happiness. If we want our lives to count, and that's what this new sermon series is going to be about, in your uh, insert, you'll see there's a, a sermon card asking you to talk about maximizing your gifts, your time, talents, and treasures. If we want our lives to count, we've got to trust the Lord with all of our heart, lean on our own understanding, and all our ways acknowledge him, and he will make our path straight. And one of the ways that we demonstrate that we really trust God with all that we are is by giving back to God his tithes and our offerings. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who has been so generous to us. You have not even spared your one and only son, but you gave him to us to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to your moral law. Then he fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the law by dying on a cross for our sins. Then he conquered sin and death with his resurrection on the third day so that we might have the gift of eternal life, that we might have the gift of a new life if we will trust in you. Lord, help us all to put our trust in you as the disciples did, to trust our lives, our very lives with you. And one way we can demonstrate our trust in you is by giving back to you in gratitude for all that you've given to us. 
So Lord, may we all prayerfully consider and discern what it is you're calling us to commit in the way of tithes, the way of offerings,